Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and thank you for being a listener. Wherever you listen, if you wouldn't mind doing us a favor, stop by there. Leave us a rating and a review. It definitely helps us out. And today's episode, we're talking about when therapists are impaired and what we should do about it and where kind of our guidance is. And in doing some research for this article, we kind of came across a bunch of older articles that are probably 20 plus years old at this point. Some of the stuff that we came across is a little bit newer, but this is something that doesn't seem to be talked about in the research a whole lot, at least as far as recently goes. Katie and I decided that we would be the new resource for what to do when impairment comes up with your colleagues and those around you. Or yourself. Or yourself. So I think we should start with what an impaired therapist is, because I think there's a lot of different ways that therapists can be impaired. So I think the easy ones, and we'll just kind of rattle off a list of these, so that way it's common knowledge. People who are actively impaired by substances, in the throes of addiction that affects their clients, neurocognitive decline is something that I've seen kind of pop up recently. People are just overwhelmed by maybe their own mental health issues that is not allowing them to perform, even burnout. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at some articles and we'll put a bevy of articles in the show notes so you can take a look at the stuff. And this was actually an article from Psychology Today from 1997 that was reviewed in 2016. So apparently it's still up to date. But talking about some of these other things and potentially even issues with clients, we had an episode this year on clients who die by suicide or clients who die. And so that can also be something that can impact us and our feelings of efficacy as therapists. There's a lot of times that we could potentially become impaired, whether it's burnout, our own mental health concerns, things that are actively happening in the therapy room. And when this happens, patients could be negatively impacted. We don't provide as high level of care as we would normally. And I think this article that I was mentioning in Psychology Today kinds of ta- kind of talks about how therapists or psychologists or, or those of us who are practicing in this field and, and psychiatrists may have more of a likelihood of these types of impairments than the the society at large because there's you know kind of the wounded healer there's the stuff that we deal with on a day-to-day basis the isolation that can come from being a therapist that we actually 
are more at risk of having these types of mental health concerns and impairment. And so we have to be very aware that even though we have these extra tools, we have resilience and coping strategies and that kind of stuff, if we don't use them, we can become impaired and really do some some harm to our clients. So what we're hoping to accomplish in this episode is looking at not only the ways that people can be impaired and our responsibility in stepping up to that, but also in the really wide variety of places that this can happen. I know that I've traditionally been involved in these discussions in my roles as a supervisor or as an educator, and those relationships have a very power-defined hierarchy to them, supervisor, supervisee, educator, student, that those institutions really do offer a much more clear path to some of the gatekeeping challenges of people entering into the profession and being able to identify when there are impairments, whether it's some of the things that we listed before, whether it's job and profession related things like getting case notes done on time and being truthful about billing or even just truthful about tracking their hours towards licensure. Those situations do have that already built in. And that by far is not the only situations where we observe impaired colleagues. That this might also be other people within your agency. It might be people in another practice that you're seeing behaviors exhibited by them that they're very likely going to impact their clients. There's also a number of people that I've come across during my career who are faced with potential whistleblowing situations where it's people above them or the agency itself that are serving to impair client progress. And we're hoping to kind of talk through a lot of these nuances in our format here today, but we're probably not going to get to them all. These are all areas that you should at least consider. One of the things that you did not mention, but I want to make sure that we also address is the responsibility of therapists to pay attention to their own level of efficacy or or functioning and identify themselves when they are impaired. And so I want to talk both from if you're observing it in others, as well as what you're seeing in yourself, so that, that people feel very empowered either way to be able to make sure as therapists that we're functioning at the highest level. Because I think for myself, I've identified times when I'm sick or when I've had a personal loss or when I'm extremely overwhelmed and, and need a mental health day, for example. And there's been times when I've gone in and tried to do therapy and it just did not happen well. And I t- you know, took that and processed it and used it, you know, the repair as part of the work with the client. You know, we, we become concerned when it's an ongoing thing. But I think that there are times, especially with, and we see this in the disciplinary actions, that if therapists are actively in addiction or if they're so personally overwhelmed, they may not see it in themselves. And so I think we do need to kind of look at what are the what are the ways that we identify within ourselves that may be a little bit easier or a little bit harder, depending on the ways in which we're impaired and the ways in which we identify it in others. Because I think for me, the time the times when I've heard about it in others are either clients, the n- new clients coming in and saying, my old therapist did this and this is why I left. And then I also think that there's times when it, with my colleagues, I've had 
worrisome interactions or things that I've seen or other colleagues saying, I'm really worried about this person. What do we do about this person? You know, and there's not necessarily specific evidence that they're impaired in session, but it is something where we're seeing behavior that really throws up some red flags. And so to me, I feel like from the beginning, when you're talking about kind of supervisors and the gatekeeping role, as well as education and that kind of stuff, I think that it needs to be a huge part. And I think this is something that we address in the the work that we're doing, that we really need to have this self-work and this self-awareness built in. So not only do supervisors and educators keep a keen eye on what's happening, but also therapists themselves, whether they're brand spanking new or been in the field for 30 years, have the ability to really assess, am I, this this is the weird phrase to use, but am I fit for duty, so to speak? Mm -hmm. A lot of the gatekeeping discussions become really around what can we do? And outside of those traditional power hierarchies that I described a little bit earlier is kind of this void of direction that in various aspects of my career, I've approached the licensing board here in California about some questionable concerns that I have of other people in the field. And the response has largely been, if you're not a client of theirs and you're not harmed by it, then there's not a whole lot that we can do in taking on this kind of a complaint. And the other direction that we look at is from our ethics codes, which as far as I'm aware, all of the major ethics codes direct us to approach the impaired colleague first. Mm-hmm. And if we're not already risk averse enough as therapists in being challenging outside of what our defined role is as a therapist is to our clients, it's really difficult to go to people and say, hey, I think what you're doing is potentially harmful. And I imagine that most of those discussions are not going to be met with, hey, you know what? I'm going to self-reflect right now and totally agree with you and <laughs> change things right away. So this is you know, really a part of navigating the ethics code in a way that is really difficult because if the expectation is for us to not police each other is not quite the right word, but it's to hold each other accountable. Or take care of each other. Then it's something where if it's a close friend or colleague, they might listen to you a lot more easily. If you don't walk that line super deftly, then I don't expect that that initial response is always going to be fairly accepted. And the the way that I look at this is, you know, my favorite thing to rail on lately is therapist Facebook groups. When somebody gets <laughs> called out for doing something that the response is usually not in, in kind of a good positive space, it, it becomes super defensive. Now, part of this is the way that unfortunately so many of us have been behaving online and just kind of jumping to, hey, that's unethical or yeah. you know, really just getting into haters and trolls and we'll link to our past episodes. episodes. (laughs) But part of this is, okay, we have to be confident enough to identify it, to be able to approach somebody else about it and deliver that message in a way that's likely going to be responded, which I expect to happen in about less than 1% of the time. 
Appsrisor is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I feel a little bit more hopeful than that, but I don't. I think that if someone could actually approach a colleague, friend, someone they know well and identify to them, hey, I'm seeing this go on. Are you okay? Even just lending an an ear, a shoulder, a helping hand, whatever, and identifying for them, hey, I noticed that you're really having trouble getting out of bed. You know, you've canceled all of our coffee dates, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing? And coming from a place of care, I think it can be accepted if you're coming from a place of, hey, I'm here for you, I want to spend time with you, or I want to, to support you or consult or whatever. It's when it, you come at them and say, hey, I think you're impaired, you really shouldn't be seeing clients. And I think when you mentioned the Facebook groups, I think that's part of what happens is that there's this assumption, there's a public shaming, there's a calling out. And I think there are times when that's needed. And I, this is not the place for that conversation. And I think there's times when the, that's harmful. And so I think to me, I feel more hopeful that if we have a strong community of clinicians around us that, and I would hope my community of clinicians would call me out as well. But if, if you're seeing your colleagues, the people that you spend some time with having struggling personally, that that becomes part of the conversation and it's acceptable. I think the thing that I saw in the article that I was reading about, like, why do shrinks, you know, what's wrong with shrinks or something? What I saw was that there is a stigma for therapists going into therapy that there is a shame and an embarrassment. I should know better than this. There's not an acceptance of therapists as human beings who have most likely had some sort of childhood trauma or some sort of some sort of wounding that's that's led them to be very called into the profession that are dealing with really hard stuff on a day-to-day basis. And so to me, I feel like there's a, there's also, and, and in the ish, in the episode with Debbie Frankel, she was talking about how when our clients die by suicide, we feel ashamed and we don't share. And so we're stuck in these tiny bubbles where we're supposed to be okay. And so I think part of it is as a society is we do want to take care of each other, but I think about these other situations where it may be a colleague that no longer is friendly with you. It may be someone you have no idea who they are. And I feel very uncomfortable approaching someone like, hey, you know that client that left? Well, they're my client now. And they said that you're doing some crazy stuff and you need to like check yourself. Like that feels really uncomfortable to me. Obviously, I wouldn't say it that way, but it's like that feels 
that responsibility feels a bit onerous. Certainly I could encourage the client to make a, a, a complaint to the appropriate board. There's, there's ways that I could support that happening, but that part feels a little bit weird to me. Like, like if I, if I saw you, Kurt having some issues and I was like, Hey, this is going to start impacting this client. I would reach out and I would, I would talk with you about it. Not necessarily like, Hey dude, you're messed up, but like, let's, let me provide support. But if I didn't know you, I would want to approach you with that. Well, speaking of the power dynamics too, is that as Katie and I have become more involved in kind of the therapist profession and risen up through you know, the ranks of our association and just some of the projects that we do is we come into contact with a lot of people and we definitely see you know the projects that we're going on we have our reputations that we try to manage and are very sensitive even with kind of the quote-unquote power that we might have here in the southern california area of just how hard it is to have these difficult conversations with people that we might rightfully identify as being impaired just because the reaction could be such a backlash against us in a public way Mm -hmm. that we're not even immune to this. And Mm -hmm. this is something where even if you are coming up in the field, and this is speaking to early career therapists of how difficult it is to look at what your career could be and if you are feeling that you know somebody's doing something that's either unethical or you know actually impaired and damaging to clients of how difficult it is to make that step to speak up because you don't want to be identified in that negative space much in the same way that Katie and I do yeah and i'm just thinking as well about impaired supervisors and therapists who are identifying or or kind of new therapists identifying my supervisor's not okay and and what that looks like and how hard that is to call out i think there's so much where this work is critical it's challenging it's sometimes life or death it's certainly sometimes steeped in crisis and risk and some of these decisions can feel very overwhelming. And then when you add on top of that, you don't know if the advice you're getting is sound, you're being treated horribly by a supervisor or whatever. You don't know that your colleague is going to be there for you when you're going out on a home visit or whatever. Like there's a lot of times when adding an impaired therapist or an impaired supervisor to the mix can just make things terrifying. And I'll bring up this point, and I have to actually credit Katie for having this idea, but I think that this is the point where we also need to delineate what is impairment versus what is just bad therapy or what is bad supervision and unskilled, because there there is a difference between those two. Impairment is really where somebody is, because of whatever situation is going on, is not able to fully be effective with clients is potentially harming them in a way that requires them to step out of the practice and to potentially go on on leave or to have kind of a major intervention. Whereas bad therapy 
or bad supervision is a skill set difference. It's something that requires either needing to learn, needing to practice new skills, go through some sort of training about you know, feedback-informed treatment or something along those lines. There's a difference between impairment and bad therapy. Really bad therapy is an impairment. You know, if you're actually harming people and, and licensing boards and ethics committees will treat it that way and say, you need to have a supervised practice in order to do this. But I think it's really important to be able to also make that decision is, is this bad therapy, somebody who wasn't trained well enough, or is this an actual impairment that is something that's getting in the way? And I've supervised people before who've had impaired other supervisors who talk about, you know, hey, we're four months into supervision and my supervisor doesn't know my name. And it's mm. not for lack of reminding them. It's they just can't remember any details about me. Wow. Yeah. I, I, before we get into to that, I want to respond to what you had said just previously, which is this kind of bad therapy versus impaired therapy. I think it's hard to distinguish because if someone impaired if they're racist <laughs> or is that just bad therapy i mean like there's there's pieces to this where you know if they've not done their clinical work and they're still really you know emotionally dysregulated during a therapy session is that bad therapy or is an impaired therapy i mean i think to me there's there's a, a huge overlap between bad therapy and impaired therapy because i think there are some folks who may not be able to use all of the skills that they've learned because they're so burned out or overwhelmed or barely getting by financially and are terrified they're going to lose their job. Like I think there's there's pieces of this where it's it could be both, it could be one or the other. And I guess the question I have is does it matter which one it is? So use the the racist question as an example. I think that you know this is where it's everybody's favorite answer in therapy. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's things that are obviously going to be to fall on one side of the line. There's things that are going to fall on the other side of the line, and racism is just going to be you know the placeholder in this discussion because this could be just about anything. But then there's a whole wide swath in the middle that's going to fall on one side to the listener and the perceiver and is going to be just totally not paid attention to by a bunch of other people. And I think in the overall answer to this, it's almost looking at what the consequence is. I guess I'm outing myself as a consequentialist in philosophical <laughs> terms. But it's if somebody calls a, a therapist out and says, hey, that's that's racist because of X, Y, and Z. And the therapist responds in an appropriate way. That's bad therapy getting better. Mm. If it's something where there's, you know, just kind of this, I, I have an incapability of seeing your viewpoints and am doubling down on why I said what I did and refusing to acknowledge that there's any other way that could be an impairment. That could be something that is just bad therapy, but it's to me, it's that willingness to look at what the what the infraction is and how the response to it is that can really help delineate it. And that might be part of answering my concern at the beginning of the episode of 
you know, where the ethics code directs us there is like, hey, if I can bring this up and somebody changes it, then we're both doing our job as far as the ethics code goes. But if they're not responding, that's where this fits in. Yeah. And I think that's a good distinction, whether or not it's the semantics anybody else would use. I think bad therapy is something that someone could be trained not to do more education, potentially their own work. But once it get, if it gets into their own work, then I think that can speak more to impaired therapy. But bad therapy is something that is a skill set. And impaired therapy is something where there potentially could be insight and they recognize I'm impaired and they go fix it. Or it could be something that's intractable and they double down. So there's a lot of different ways. I mean, I'm trying to simplify it just to kind of get my hands around like what is the the definition we're looking at. But if we throw away bad therapy, not the not the very bad therapy podcast, that's an excellent one to talk oh, about yeah. some of these it, things. We gotta if you're not to listening to notes, them yet. You gotta be listening to them. But if we look at impaired therapy, I think there are folks that are going to recognize pretty quickly, yeah, I'm really having a tough time, whether it's a divorce or a death or you know, like a, a loss of a client or whatever it is. Like yes, thank you for pointing that out to me. I'm going to take some time off and I'm going to get my head right. And then I'm going to, you know, kind of make sure I'm in consultation and in my own therapy when I return back to, to, to doing the work because I'm identifying myself and, and I appreciate you coming forward and saying that. And for you, you think that's about 1% of the time. I don't know what the percentages are. Um, I hope that there's people having the consultation groups around them that they would be responsive to that. But when we go to these folks who potentially don't see it and don't agree or feel very threatened by this idea that they are not fit to practice either in the moment or anymore, if we're talking about cognitive decline and some of the things that are kind of more permanent, so to speak, how do we identify when it's actually impaired? And, and I will claim, I, I will credit you with this idea of where's the line how do we identify this is actually impaired and needs to be addressed? How do we identify when we need to, to step forward and make a complaint or try to do something official, which sounds like may not even actually do anything? And what truly is our responsibility to that therapist, to their clients, to the profession? Like, what do we actually take on here? Because I feel like I want to make sure I'm keeping my side of the street clean, that I'm doing my work, that I make sure that I am aware of, of my own capabilities as to the best of my ability. But if someone else is doing harm, what's my role? How do I identify that it's actually harm? Like, what, what do I do? Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. According to our ethics codes, our job is to bring it up to the colleague themselves or the supervisee or the supervisor, whoever it might be. And if it's not followed through on, then your job is to report it with supporting documentation that you've reached out to this person or persons that you then bring it to the ethics committee and they then make their decisions. 
or to the board, right? So the board has a little bit different stance on this. And in 2018, Stephen Frankel did a presentation for the California Board of Behavioral Sciences on neurocognitive decline in essentially older therapists and what the licensing board's responsibility is in intervening before client harm actually happens. And my understanding of the resulting discussion is that the board at the time said that until there's actually client harm, that the board can't tell people to stop practicing. And so this is at least the way that our board is structured here in California is that this is a consumer protection board and without actual harm being done, then the person is free to practice and kind of taking this, we'll set the rules and we'll enforce the rules, but until the rules are actually broken and it's causing harm, we can't step in and say, well, you're deemed fit to practice and you're not, even though things might be very, very similar between the two of you. Mm-hmm. So as we look at your question, what we can do is we can raise our concerns and we can do that in the, the one-on-one way. We can bring our concerns as professionals to whatever ethics committees are necessary. But it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of gatekeeping power that we have unless we're in one of those supervisory positions or one of those educator positions early on in somebody's career. And this keeping our side of the street clean, I don't know that that's necessarily enough because when we look at the way that therapists are already perceived is when one of us acts poorly, it reflects badly on all of us. And this is, you know, something where, you know, you see a therapist portrayed poorly in in a movie or TV show just as a plot point and, you know, something that helps speed up the storyline is people can and do take on that as a identifying factor of what our reputations as therapists are, even when we are doing everything that we can to be legal and ethical in our practices. I do agree that if we are wanting to have our profession reflect positively and to make sure that that we're continuing the work of decreasing mental health stigma, increasing access and and the perceived benefit from therapy that that we want to make sure that we're doing what we can, it just feels very hopeless because with the consumer protections, they're not protecting against these impaired therapists like there's there's very little unless someone gets arrested for DUI or shoplifting or some sort of violence against people in their lives or actually doing something for a client, then the Board of Behavioral Sciences will step in. But when we're looking at some of the more nuanced things that may not show up in legal action or those kinds of things like cognitive decline, mental health concerns with a therapist earlier in their career or whatever, like it doesn't sound like there's really any real recourse that would actually have a big impact and, and protect clients, which it seems like a, it seems like a missing piece. So if we look historically at what is done when law and order isn't being done by the governing areas, really what you're speaking to is that we need to create vigilante bands of therapists to go around and enforce <laughs> these <laughs> Vigilante bands. What would we do as vigilante bands? Well, we, we can go back to you know the the therapist cartels and our cardigan <laughs> cartels. 
<laughs> what? So what are the vigilante cardigan cartel members going to do? Force people to stop practicing? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is very obviously a joke, but all of this comes down to really being engaging other therapists and engaging them in really good education about what good therapy is, about what their ethical responsibilities are. But at the end of the day, so much of what we do is based on our own self-assessment abilities. And we lose some of those abilities if we're not fully paying attention to them, not fully working on them. And some of the discussions with even Scott Miller about how to make the feedback-informed treatment and getting therapists to look at themselves a, a more widespread practice. Even he said that this kind of involves people wanting to do this, not mm. something that we can necessarily mandate or force out of, you know, CEUs and you know, CEUs, not the most effective way of getting people to do things either. Nope. But I don't think that there's anything that we can do to actually force people. And that's where our holding each other accountable is really where therapists are going to be impaired. They're going to make mistakes. It's going to harm people. And we have to be there ready to step in when that happens. And we can't, we're not minority report where we can precog our way into, <laughs> okay, in some future date, you're going to do this thing. And until we are minority report, then we're kind of in the system that it's not perfect. And we do have some mechanisms in place to address it when it happens. I'm just thinking about the reputation that happens. I mean, if we think about the problem taking care of itself, a therapist whose abilities are declining, you know, whether it's cognitive decline or alcoholism or mental health concerns or whatever, that colleagues start talking, clients start talking. And it does seem like there's a piece of this that it does take care of itself a little bit. But my hope is that we can, as a profession, and as all of us modern therapists, commit to our own personal work, our consultation, to make sure that we're doing what we need to do to be able to identify when, not if, but when we are impaired so that we don't harm our clients and that we do step back and, and get the support, the help, the, the perspective that we need. You can add in your two cents on this and join us in our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group. Uh, you can also check out our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com and check out all of the wonderful things that Katie and I are doing. And until next time, thanks for listening. And I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. 
Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.